Hey friends, welcome back to the Old Fashioned On Purpose podcast. So it is the last episode of this season. I think it's season 12. We're wrapping it up today. We're going to take a couple week break after this, but holy moly, this season has been incredible. And I don't know if I'm allowed to say this. It feels a little bit like saying I have a favorite child, but this just might be my favorite season ever to date, at least. You know, we kicked it off with Rob Avis in that permaculture episode, which just kind of rocked my world. I'm still thinking about it. I'm still quoting it to people. Um, We had so much ground that we covered from soil to butchering to pork um, to moving our bodies to the super spicy Monsanto cancer trial episode. Just so good. I'm so grateful for the guests that I get to talk with, um, the people that this podcast has brought into my life. So just such a privilege to be here and able to present this information to you guys. And thank you for following along and listening. Um, Also, speaking of guests, if you have a guest recommendation for me, or maybe you are a guest that would want to come on my podcast and do deep dives into a specific topic, um, I would invite you to head on over to my website, theprairiehomestead.com. If you click on the podcast tab up at the top, there is a form that you can fill out. You can either nominate someone else. And if you do, you can just ignore some of the questions or you could nominate yourself and send me some topic ideas. So I'm really excited. We already have a, we're already actually recording into the next season because I like to be planned ahead as much as possible. So you'll love next season's guests as well. It's going to be good. But uh, anyway, last episode of the season. So a few little life updates. Um, Things are rolling along here on the homestead at the time of recording this. The gardens are in. We're still in that kind of early summer honeymoon period. By the time you listen to this, it will be midsummer. But right now, um, I'm really enjoying having the garden in, having it mostly weeded as much as you can be weeded, and just enjoying that peaceful lull uh, before we get into harvest time. Also, uh, I want to say a huge thank you to everyone who has pre-ordered my new book, Old Fashioned On Purpose, so far. Um, It has been so well-received, even though it hasn't actually hit shelves yet. It's not going to hit shelves until September 26th, actually. Uh, So more to come on that. But my publisher has actually been blown away at um, the number of pre-orders we've had. And I'm like, you know what? I'm actually not super surprised because this homesteading community shows up. And I've been so grateful for you guys. So if you haven't pre-ordered your copy yet, um, I have a whole bunch of pre-order bonuses for you. If you go over to oldfashionedbook.com, you can get all of the goodies. There's a sourdough ebook, there's canning stuff, there's home dairy stuff, there's a virtual meet and greet, um, there's wall art. It's just really fun. And pre-orders are a really awesome way to get a book because number one, it shows up in your mailbox. You don't have to remember on launch week, but also it helps a book get into the world with a little more splash. And that's what I'm trying to do with this book. I'm kind of have a mission for it. I want it to break out of just the homesteading world and get into mainstream culture. Because as you and I know, mainstream culture needs some homesteading. Struggling a little bit right now, right? So anyway, oldfashionedbook.com, grab your copy of the book. Uh, but today, I have a really awesome guest to round out this season. And we're going back into a topic that we've covered quite a bit in seasons past, and that is this idea of old-fashioned parenting. So I'm joined by Ben Greenfield today, and actually he's not as well-known for his parenting advice as he is for other topics. He is extremely well-versed in the worlds of biohacking, fitness, nutrition, and wellness. You've probably come across him before because he is very well-respected in this world. He's also a human performance consultant, a speaker, a New York Times bestselling author. He has 13 books. He's done all the things. But the reason I wanted to have him on today is because he just launched a book called Boundless Parenting. And as I was reading through some of that, I was just really struck by some of the advice that he gave. He has taken some of the ideas we've discussed here on the podcast with previous guests, and I love how he applies it. He gets really practical, and he's able to give us some really meaty suggestions. So you're going to love this interview. Um, get your notepad out. It's going to at least for me, it got my creative juices flowing. It started to help me kind of question how I could shift things even more with our kids. We're kind of on this path, but it challenged me to go even bigger. So you're going to love it. And without further ado, here is Ben. All right, Mr. Ben Greenfield, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited for this conversation. Well, I'm, I'm excited for for a bit of sunshine and a nice 
windy day on the coast and a chat as well. I, I, I left a little bit of energy in the gas tank after biking my, my kids over to a nearby town to, to have a little breakfast on the sea. So, so this is going to be fun. Excellent. Yes. And so for those of you watching the video, or maybe you're not watching, but you're hearing some wind noise, Ben is <laughs> on vacation. He was gracious enough to still do this interview. So if you hear a little bit of background noise, uh, this is real life, y'all. So just just bear with us and it'll be all good. So it'll be worth it. So. <laughs> that's, that's right. Sea Seaside, Oregon. For anybody who hasn't been here, it's a cool little little town on the coast. But the, the nature of Oregon coastlines is they do tend to be a little windy. So <laughs> yes, definitely. We're a little windy here in Wyoming, too. So we right. we get it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I've been looking at your brand new book, Boundless Parenting, and I was really excited when I, what I was seeing inside of it, because it's not only aligned with a lot of the things we do here with our children, but also um, I noticed on some of the, the recommended reading and stuff you had, especially in your chapter, it was a lot of crossover with guests we've already had. So I think this is going to be an awesome conversation with lots of synergy. But maybe just to start us off, could you give us a little bit of background on your family since we're going to be talking about parenting and kids and all that good stuff today? Oh, well, uh, my my close family is just me and my wife and our twin 15-year-old sons, River and Taryn. Uh, my wife comes from a family of, uh, of uh, five children. I come from a family of five children. So we both come from somewhat larger families. My background is being homeschooled out in the hills of North Idaho, K through 12. And my wife grew up also in North Idaho, going to a, a classical uh, Christian school called Logos in Moscow, Idaho. We met in, in second grade in Sunday school and uh, we're kind of like best buddies all through college and fell in love our senior year and got married and, and uh, started, a, started a, a larger family at about five years into our relationship. And um, gosh, both of us just, we love kids. We love family, we love education. We love to talk parenting and we, we don't have all the answers, but we, we, we love this journey. And actually it's, it's kind of funny. And probably another good reason that I'm out in the streets talking to you right now is we're at an, uh, the annual seaside Oregon getaway where my wife's mother takes every single one of her siblings and all their extended family, nieces, nephews, cousins, about Oh, I think it's around 25 of us or so. And we all live in this tiny little two bedroom, two bathroom cottage. Uh, and so uh, we're definitely all about family. And it's certainly been top of mind for me the past few days. My, uh, my sons are, um, they're unschooled, you know, which is a little bit different than homeschooling. It's not really a structured curriculum as much as we teach them through experiential education, excursions into the local community, uh, tutors and instructors where where we see fit and where they fit in, but largely unschooling is kind of a matter of, again, not following a traditional like homeschooling curriculum, right? Because sometimes homeschooling is almost mm -hmm. like uh, like a public or a private school, but it's done around the kitchen table, right? Like books and tests and quizzes and homework and and the like, and that's kind of the way my my own homeschooling education was. But unschooling is very loosey goosey. It's more a matter of paying attention to your child's passions and interests and hopes and dreams and desires, and then structuring whatever experiences that they get at that point in their life around what it is that they're actually interested in, right? Like for my son's yes. math curriculum a couple of years ago, they, they built a tree fort out in the backyard and learned geometry and woodworking and math and angles and things like that. Or for you know, cooking and social studies, right? We're planning right now to leave for Italy next week on a family cycling trip. So there's been a lot of, you know, home duolingo lessons or duolingo language lessons and, and cooking in Italian, you know, certain objects around the house. And if you'll, if you'll bear with me for just a second, I forgot to put my phone in do not disturb. So I'm getting some calls coming in. Let me do that just a second here. Okay. Okay. I'm back. Um, and okay. so, so, uh, back, back to the Italian thing. So, you know, so we're cooking Italian and, and speaking, you know, at dinner to each other in Italian and playing Italian games like bang. And so, you know, the, the one thing to bear in mind with unschooling is, of course, when you use that type of educational approach, there are going to be things that your child may not express as a passion or an interest or a desire that you know is going to serve them later on in life. Like, let's say for if they decide to go to college, a college entrance exam, or certain elements of mathematics that, let's face it, most kids don't wake up in the morning wanting to learn trigonometry, but that might be a useful skill for them later in life. And so 
we do kind of tack on to the unschooling curriculum certain subjects that I think are just key good subjects for a child to learn no matter what. And that's largely, you know, reading or being able to to digest large amounts of information at a relatively rapid pace, writing or expressing one's thoughts clearly in both typing and written format, preferably something longer than like, you know, 140 character tweet. I think long form writing is particularly yes. a, an oft forgotten skill that is highly valuable and I think will continue to be valuable. Um, arithmetic or basic figuring, uh, fourth, some element of logic and or computer programming. I think both fit the bill. And I think that games, card games, board games, et cetera, often fit the logic piece as well. And then finally, rhetoric, right? Like expressing one's thoughts clearly, persuasion, speaking, et cetera. So in a nutshell, we've got twin 15-year-old sons. We unschool them. We pay attention to their passions and interests and desires and provide them as, with as many hands-on experiential activities that can satisfy those. And then we make sure that no matter what, they're learning reading, writing, math, logic, and rhetoric. And that's kind of like how, how, we, how we operate things at our house. Yeah, I love that. I want to talk, talk a little bit more about the unschooling approach, but really quick as a little side note. Um, I'm also from Moscow. I was also homeschooled, and I went what? to Logos for a few weeks. Yes. What? Oh, my, I'm <laughs> yes, sure my, I, well... I won't ask you how old you are on the podcast because you know that's rude and everything. But right. I'm sure you must have ran into my wife. Her family was the it was the case bolts. In case you were familiar with the ran into oh, the case bolts at all, it sounds familiar. And I remember because yeah. um, my mom was really involved in the homeschool groups. I remember her talking about your mom. I don't know if they were like friends <laughs> or they just like knew of each other. But it's yeah, small world, small world. Oh, that is so um, funny! Wow. Yeah, good old Moscow. But yeah, so. I've read I've read a considerable amount on the unschooling approach. I really like Peter Gray. We we homeschool our own children. I'd say it's more of a hybrid between homeschooling and unschooling. We definitely don't try to replicate the classroom. We do sit down for a couple hours each morning and do the things that you were referring to, the math, the writing, the reading. Uh, and I don't really think there's necessarily a formula for any family. So I'm not trying to create a formula, but I'd love to hear just what that looks like for for you guys. I know you're 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 more unschooling than I am. And how do you how do you weave the math and the reading in, especially with a child who maybe, you know, would rather be out building tree houses or putting together go-karts? How do you encourage yeah. them in those things that they might not naturally be drawn to? Yeah, great question. So first, any parent who decides to take this route needs to be comfortable with a lack of structure and predictability and no set hoops to jump through. Right, like we're very used to, especially if we, like you or I or any other parent, were educated in a private or public schooling traditional format, which kind of follows some of the old, you know, German engineering principles of schooling, where you're trying to train a good factory worker who can put square pegs and square holes and round pegs and round holes and the like, uh, and and take good marching orders and and play well with others. Well, yes. that requires a certain amount of structure from a curriculum standpoint, rote test taking, homework, and demonstrable proficiency in certain chapters of a book or set of books, right? Like, like that's kind of generally how a homeschooling or private schooling or public schooling scenario traditionally is run. There are, of course, some exceptions to that, such as a, you know, a Montessori education would be one example. But when, when you look at unschooling, it's much more loosey-goosey, right? There's, there's not really like, you know, a set of books from, you know, say like, whatever, a Becca or Veritas Press or something like mm -hmm. that. And you're just as a parent opening up the books. And at the end of the day, hey, I've checked off this in math and this in reading and this in the social sciences book. We're good to go. School is over. All right, uh, let's, let's go. Let's go to the park. Instead, with unschooling, what we have, the way we have it is every month we have a meeting with our sons and we go over new things that they're interested in, right? Like be that glass blowing or wild plant foraging or a local camp or clinic they're interested in or learning to cook with a new style of cuisine, et cetera. And then we have two people who help us out on the unschooling front. We have Darcy, who actually lives in Virginia, right? So she's virtual and she takes all the interests and then she's very good at looking at the entire next three months and scheduling out certain days and finding activities in the community and also online that we can then plug into different days that they then wake up in the morning and know that, oh, today I'm going to, at 11 a.m., go down to the local glass blowing place in Spokane and take a class for an hour. Or Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 4 p.m., I've, uh, I've got my tennis. Or 
you know, Saturdays at 6 a.m., we've arranged for, you know, a, a fighter to come up to the house and do a little bit of jujitsu in the garage, right? And so the schedule is constantly fluctuating and changing based on those monthly meetings. But then in between all of those, all of those one-off activities that she's putting in, we then have regularly scheduled classes. And many of those are indeed online, although some involve tutors that we found coming to the house. Cause I think that in-person face-to-face eye-to-eye interaction with a mentor is important for, for a human being mm-hmm. to be able to, to interact with at an early age. But so to satisfy these other criteria, as far as like the reading, the writing, the arithmetic, the logic, the, the rhetoric, and some of the other core subjects that Washington state actually requires demonstrable proof that a child has actually studied. Uh, we, we fill in the gaps with tutors, with online classes, et cetera. Like they have a, an online mathnasium class three times per week right now. Although for the three years leading up to this, they had Ed, you know, an, uh, an old retired math teacher coming up to the house three times a week to sit in the, in the downstairs living room with them and take them through math. Um, they have a, I think it's on Wednesday nights right now, a rhetoric, speech and debate class that they go to. Uh, that's kind of like for local homeschoolers and, and unschooling families in the community for a structured rhetoric approach. Um, for uh, for reading, we have all the great books, and there's always at least one that they're going through in addition to another book that I typically assign to them as a father-son book that we go through and discuss each night before dinner, right? So that's programmed in whether or not they wake up in the morning and express a desire to read that particular book. Um, for writing, uh, same thing. Uh, right now they do the Institute for Excellence in Writing. So mm-hmm. yep. I think they're at four times per week. They go down into the living room, they put in the DVD and they go through an assignment from Andrew Pudua. Right. But then at the same yep. time, this is all blended with the unschooling components. Right. Yeah. They, we, we assign them writing and, and we make, if you want to call it that, them go through Institute for Excellence in Writing. But then they also are super interested in fiction. Right. So out the side, sure. I have them going through a self-publishing course right now with Chandler Bolt. They get up in the morning and we have certain free times, blocks of free times. Like they have three different two-hour blocks of free time each week that's just dedicated to writing. They can do whatever they want. They can read books that 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 are related to what they want to write about. They can just sit and write. They can go outside and explore and get inspired to write. Doesn't matter, but we set up those blocks so they've got some unstructured time to work on that skill also. So it's kind of like some structure, mostly via tutors and classes, both online and locally, along with unstructured free time for them in which there's no rules except they need to make sure that whatever they're doing is slightly oriented towards that activity, if that makes sense. And so again, back to Washington State, by the way, yeah, 12 core subjects, social sciences, reading, writing, math, et cetera, they're required to demonstrate Mm -hmm. proficiency in or have logged certain hours in. But that we can do that in our sleep, like literally, like if they cook a meal for mom and dad for anniversary or whatever, right? Like that's math. If it's from a certain country, that's social sciences and history, uh, that it's chemistry. Um, in some cases, if they're like creating the menu for mom and I, it's writing and art. So you can be pretty creative with making sure that whatever state that you live in, you're actually logging via a journal that they both keep what you've done for the day. And then what happens is, at the end of each week, they they take that journal and digitally upload it to Darcy. So we have robust records mm. of everything that our yes. kids have done each day. So if we ever do get audited, we we have it all noted. And that's also really important for their, you know, if they did decide that they wanted to go to university for things like entrance exams to show what they've learned, et cetera. And then in addition to that, there's a fantastic group out of Texas called Apogee, A-P-O-G-E-E. Yes. My sons are both enrolled in that. Yeah, with Matt Baudreau. And so Mm -hmm. that's a group of young men who meet every Friday with a mentor who's usually like a super cool entrepreneur or like Navy SEAL or whatever. And they sit with them in a Friday mentoring class, but then they have certain tasks each month. Like this month, you need to come up with three dream people who you'd want to interview them and hunt down at least one of them for a 15-minute interview. Or this month, you are required to call every older male sir and every older female ma'am and work on your manners and your etiquette. And as a part of Apogee, every young man that's enrolled in that program has like a portfolio and that lives 
on basically a website that the kid creates for themselves and uploads their monthly activities into. So not only do they have all their digital journal entries for each week, but then they have this portfolio that they keep with Apogee. And, you know, even though my sons haven't gone through the full Apogee program, Matt says that he's had some students literally like walk into, you know, not that I'm putting college on a huge pedestal here, but like walk into Ivy League institutions and have that be the dial mover for them that gets them accepted is just this massive portfolio of super impressive work that they've that they've recorded over their years on Apogee. So, so those are some of the ways that we go about things from a structuring standpoint. I did mention, Jill, by the way, that there are two people who are involved besides mom and I. One is Darcy, right, yes. who's helping out with a lot of the Excel spreadsheets. Here's what they're going to do each day. And then the other is a local person named Nessa. And Nessa would be what you might consider like the governess, right? Like she will show up to drive them to different activities when mom and I are not available. She will um, come to the house and like scan or print different things that the kids might need access to. She will make sure that if there's something that need to be signed up for locally and, and we need to get mom and dad signatures on things and the kids need to get driven to a certain event or, you know, they need certain groceries picked up for a science project or whatever. She's kind of like the local boots on the ground that ensures that mom and I aren't spending our entire day as chauffeurs, as drivers, and as logistical organizers. And, mm-hmm. and, and I mean, unschooling is not expensive, really. I mean, I think Darcy yeah. is a few hundred bucks a month. Nessa's, I think we pay her, I think she gets like somewhere in the range of $23, $24 an hour right now. And she's working, you know, very part-time on this. So all in, our expenses for our son's education for both of them is under a thousand dollars a month, and you know that, that's that's yeah. pretty significant, especially when most of that is written off as educational expenses, anyways. Sure, yeah, definitely. If you're if you're trying to compare that to private school, there's no contest in the in the difference there. Plus, th- this is much more robust and vibrant. It seems. Yeah. Definitely. Okay. That's really helpful. Thanks for, for outlining that like you did. I've talked to, I mean, all unschooling is different. I think that's the very nature of it. But, um, you know, in some of the parents I've talked to in the past, it's, it's, I mean, everyone's different. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but it's more like, oh, the kids just kind of get up when they want and they might read a book if they want and they might do this if they want. And I'm like, I, I can kind of see yeah. that, but it helps to, to see your a little more, um, a little more structure within the unstructure that, that, that feels really nice yeah there need to be some general lines that you draw inside and i mean you know i i i I did just publish this book boundless parenting and i i go into a lot more detail as far as giving examples of what a weekly curriculum if you want to call it that looks like and you know there's some tables and diagrams and things like that in the book for people who want to take a deeper dive yeah awesome um what have we left behind in our race towards progress That's the question that I set out to answer in my latest book, Old Fashioned On Purpose. It's no secret to people like you and I that something is rippling through humanity at the moment. More and more people are feeling pulled and called to cast aside the baggage of modern life in favor of something more meaningful. To me, an old-fashioned on-purpose life is an awakening. It's a remembering. It's a returning to what matters. And it's available to everyone, whether you have a homestead or not. So the book isn't out yet. It's going to hit shelves on September 26th. But if you pre-order right now, I've put together a kind of outrageous package of bonuses. There's a never-before-seen sourdough ebook. There's home dairy guides. There's printable wall art, uh, a virtual meet and greet, all kinds of stuff. And you can get that right away. So if you want to check it out, get all the details, head on over to oldfashionedbook.com. You can see the cover, you can check out the bonuses, and I can't wait for you to hold it in your hands. All right, now back to our episode. So kind of back to, I was, I was looking through your chapter in that book and it is, it's a compilation, right? Cause I think your assistant just sent me the chapter that had your answers, but I, there are 37 people. Is that correct? That you interviewed in that book? Yeah, the general premise behind that book is it's kind of like, I don't know if you read much Tim Ferriss, but he was probably the most notable example mm-hmm. of a guy who kind of like crowdsourced a book in a way with titles like Tribe of Mentors or Tools of Titans, meaning that he knew he didn't have all the answers, but he stepped back and from a, you know, what if this were easy type of approach, which is how he approaches and solves a lot of problems, 
how can I gather all this knowledge and practical wisdom without having to, you know, go through all this myself, right? Because like, in my case, my sons are 15, who's to say they're not going to wind up in prison when they're 18. And, you know, I I don't have the proven model, but, you know, via my podcasts and a lot of my relationships, I know a lot of amazing parents who are entrepreneurs, who are pastors, who are teachers and educators, who are counselors, etc. So I generate a list of 32 questions that I think were some of the most important questions around, you know, how, how did you educate? How did you discipline? What did you do when you and your wife or your spouse disagreed on certain topics, etc.? I asked every single one of those uh, 35 parents, and there's, there's me and my wife as well, um, mm-hmm. those questions, and then gathered the best of the best responses and edited them, pared them down, put them in the book, and then also did audio interviews with each parent for the, for the audiobook portion. So yeah, it's definitely like an anthology of wisdom from a variety of different parents and yeah, you know, there's a few unicorns in there, you know, uh, you know, divorced single mothers to, you know, one, uh, po- poly, uh, polygamous families. So like there's, it's, it's kind of a pretty wide yeah. range of parents in there. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. It, look, it's, it's really well done. Um, I, I enjoyed what I read so far. So to shift gears a little bit, one of the topics that came up in your, your chapter in that book was you, you talked a lot about kind of this idea of natural consequences and letting those guide our children versus the helicopter approach that we see so rampant in our culture today. Can you kind of unpack that a little bit for the audience and explain how you set that up with your boys? Yeah. Um, the general premise behind the love and logic approach is that you educate your child or children about the natural consequences of any decision, good or bad, that they might make in life. And then generally let them deal with the consequences after applying what you've taught them to their decision-making process. Uh, And this would be in contrast to what I would consider to be a less empowering, less education-focused approach that is heavy on discipline and heavy on no's and heavy on very strict rules, but it often puts a child into a position where they're simply being told no a lot or bossed around or commanded by the parent a lot with do this or do that or don't do this or don't do that. But they're not really actually learning a lot of the logic or the science or the reasoning behind why they're being told to do or not to do certain things. And so the the idea here is that it's actually pretty easy as a parent to... um not that I have anything wrong against spanking per se. We can, we can talk about that later on if you'd like, but it's very easy to like spank a child or discipline a child or put a child on timeout or tell them, no, don't do this because it's an easy way out as a parent to not need to educate or empower your child or have longer discussions with them about the reason behind, you know, certain house rules or the reason behind certain things that you're telling them to do or not to do. So for, for illustrative purposes, you know, let, let's say like um, screen time, right? Like a lot of families have screen time rules. We have zero screen time rules. Our kids can play video games and hop around on screens and be glued to digital devices to their heart's content. However, I have very intentionally brought my children through different books like EMF that highlights, you know, the effects of non-ionizing radiation on a child's developing brain and nervous system. I've taught them about the difference in the dopamine response to real face-to-face human interactions versus digital interactions. I've taught them about the effects of blue light on things like circadian rhythmicity, on sleep, on retinal contractions and long-term eye health. And that's obviously taken some time and some attention, some presence for me as a parent to be able to really make sure my children know the, the whys in an understandable way behind something like why someone would or would not want to spend long periods of time on a screen. And uh, so based on that, they then can decide how much time they want to spend on a screen and whether or not they want to deal with the consequences that I've taught them about excessive screen time. Now, if you use an approach like this, two things are very important. One, more is caught than taught. That's probably the number one thing most of the parents repeatedly said in this, this book I was talking about. Uh, and this means that you must set an example as a parent, right? Like if you say there's no screen time in the home, but digital interactions really detract from valuable social interactions and connectivity 
and your phone is two feet away from you at the dinner table each night, you're glancing at it like six times just to make sure that last email of the day didn't come through or, hey, hold on, kids, this is important. Dad's got to reply to this real quick. Uh, I'm not scrolling Instagram feed. I'm just taking care of a work thing. Whatever your excuses are, your kids notice that. And then when they have downtime or they eventually have their own device and they're at the dinner table, they know that that's an option, that it's there. And we know based on research that even the mere the mere presence of a phone on a table detracts from social interactions, whether or not you're interacting with it. So, so A, you have to set a really good example as a parent, right? You teach your child about the benefits of physical activity, movement, Pomodoro breaks and exercise, but then you make mm-hmm. sure they're not witnessing you sit for three hours slumped over in the living room on your laptop without getting up once. And you make sure that you announce loudly when you're headed down into the basement gym to work out and invite them to join along with you. And, you know, it's kind of funny because like, for me, it's every 30 to 45 minutes, I'll do 100 jumping jacks or 30 push-ups or whatever throughout the day. And rather than doing them in my office, I'll intentionally go up to the living room, right? Because I have a home office. They're in school, so they're home a lot of the time. And I'll literally like go in the living room and I'll be bouncing around doing jumping jacks and shouting upstairs to them in their bedroom, hey, I'm doing my Pomodoro break. Anybody want to join in? Right. And so that's much better than me simply telling them they need to move but them never seeing that as an example. So first, you got to set an example. Second, you need to make sure that for any activity that you're encouraging them not to do or to limit, you provide a lot of fun alternatives, right? Like if your backyard has an Mm -hmm. obstacle course and really fun swings and like ours, bocce ball and cornhole and like, you know, a, a little miniature pickleball court with the lines that I painted in the driveway and a closet full, like a hundred different board games and card games, like there's a lot of fun alternatives that my children can turn to instead of screens. And that's really important is that you provide really fun alternatives. And that again, back to the more is caught than taught. When I have downtime, I'm strumming a guitar. I'm throwing a, a beanbag into the cornhole. I'm out hitting the pickleball against the garage door. And I'm demonstrating to my children that there are things you can do in your downtime besides just scrolling through a feed or spending time on digital devices. And so you could say this for, I gave you exercise and screen time as examples, Jill. You could say it for gluten, right? Like yes. there's no rules. You, you're not allowed to it's like yep. not eat junk food in our house, but my kids know about vegetable oil. They know about high fructose corn syrup. They know about artificial sweeteners and colors. They know about even something like gluten and its effect on the, on the neural system and the potential for neural inflammation. And then A... We let them make the decision and deal with the consequences. They get a tummy ache or poor school performance. Well, you had three slices of pizza at Tom's birthday party last night. So you got to deal with that. I'm sorry. I don't know what to tell you. You know, I I told you. Or you make sure that you've provided a lot of really cool, healthy snack options around the house that give them alternatives to junk food. And finally, if they do want whatever, Snickers bar, Skittles, whatever, they got to buy that themselves when they go to the grocery store and at least have ownership. So that would be an example with food. Mm. Or another example would be, let's say if we want to get a little bit more controversial with vices, like say, porn or alcohol or weed, Mm -hmm. right? Like my sons have been through the entire Your Brain on Porn website. They understand objectification of women. They understand how it affects their dopamine levels, how it affects things like erectile dysfunction later on in life. And so, you know, if, if, they want to go out and buy a porn. I've literally told this. I'm not, I've told them, like, yeah, if you want to go buy, buy a porn magazine or visit a website or whatever, do it. But here's what's going to happen. And there are subtle nuances. Like, I do have Canopy installed on their devices, which is a porn protection software, simply because I know that it's over 80% of kids whose first exposure to pornography is completely accidental and served up through an ad. So mm-hmm. I do try to use prudence as a parent and protect them from things that I know they might not intentionally do. Uh, alcohol, right? Like I've educated them heavily on the effects of alcohol on a growing liver, on a, a developing brain. And when we have a new bottle of wine that shows up or, you know, dad comes home from Portugal recently and brought home some port, we give them a little bit at the table and say, here, taste this. Here's the notes. Here's the floral. Here's the aroma. Here's what this tastes like. Here's a, a Bordeaux versus a, uh, you know, a Cabernet. And so wine isn't some hidden forbidden fruit secret topic that only adults can engage in it's instead something they understand and have a healthy relationship with and unlike me you know my first exposure with alcohol was stealing a bottle of scotch from my dad's desk because all i knew was alcohol was spoken of in hushed terms 
and only allowed for adults yeah. at the dinner table. My kids would like laugh at that. They'd be like, why the heck would I steal a bottle of wine from the pantry when like I know everything about alcohol and what it does? And if I asked my parents, they'd give me a taste of this anyways. Or weed, right? Like I've taught them about what THC does to the mitochondrial membrane, the impacts of oxidation on a young child's development and nervous system, the impact on adults in terms of, of the impact of, on gray matter in the brain, et cetera. And they, they know like where they, we live in freaking Washington state. You can't swing a dead cat by the tail without hitting a cannabis right. dispensary and, you know, yep. kids can <laughs> order weed online, but they understand and they know that if they were to get like high at our house because their friend gave them a joint or whatever, dad's not going to come down and discipline them or spank them or something like that. They're just going to have to deal with the stupidity and the brain damage. And I will definitely tell them something like, oh, hey, you decided to kill off a few brain cells today, huh? And, and they understand that. And so, again, it's not a forbidden fruit, but it's something that I'm educating them and empowering them towards. And then finally, Jill, there are certain things that you do need to protect your child from, especially when from a developmental psychology standpoint, before the ages of somewhere around in the range of eight to 10, they simply can't grasp, right? Like if you have a two-year-old toddling towards a yeah. hot stove, do not think, well, I taught him that that's hot. So I should just let him get a third degree burn on their hand and deal with the natural consequences. No, that's where you would slap their hand away and make sure that the mild pain associated with the slap of the hand is something that they remember, but it's better than them getting a third degree burn on their hand and needing to go to the hospital. Furthermore, if they're putting their own life at severe danger, or someone else's life from a physical standpoint, particularly in danger, such as hitting or striking another child, um, such as, uh, you know, at a very young age, ignoring everything you've told them about putting their bicycle on, their bicycle helmet on to ride around the neighborhood. There are certain situations where I do feel, you know, from a spare the rod, spoil the child standpoint, something like a spanking could be appropriate. But those would be when they're actually doing things that are putting society or themselves in some pretty significant danger. And then those are the times when in the past I've, I've resorted to spanking as a last resort. And even that, sure. if you were to spank, you need to be very careful as a parent to ensure that your own emotions and anger are not involved. And anytime you can have the luxury of stepping away and giving yourself time to let the emotions come down and assess from a real logical, rational standpoint, whether or not a spanking is appropriate, you know, and waiting an hour or whatever to make sure that you've really thought about that punishment and then doling it out. I think that that's prudent because I think a lot of parents will lash out in anger as, as like an irrational rash response and do damage to a child psychologically or physically. So I think even spankings need to be very intentional and very well thought out and never done in a state of emotional disrepair by a parent. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I do love this conversation about the the natural consequences, though, and I think that it's it's not complicated, but it just requires a different type of thinking that we don't often see in modern parenting culture. And I think just having those examples that you gave are really helpful because um, I know a lot of times we're just I think we're conditioned as parents. You, you, it's all about the restrictions, and it's all about you know the discipline, and so just seeing that other side of the coin is really yeah, helpful. Yeah. Yeah. So. As you're, you're speaking here, you, I, I can tell, you know, obviously you put a ton of thought into all of these um, methods that you use with your children and, and the ways you educate them. And it, may, it brought to mind something that is often said to me, you know, we, we have lots of crossover, and I think how we parent, you know, our kids have a unique lifestyle. We're entrepreneurs, we have a homestead, we have animals, we have projects, we have lots of things that keep them busy here. Um, so they're not, they're not drawn towards screens. They're not drawn towards YouTube and, and phones as much. And, all, and, and they're out playing and creating and building and exploring. And whenever I post about that online, uh, particularly recently, I had a video go viral. And it, it brought in a lot of negativity. And one of the comments that came up over and over again was like, well, that's nice for you. But most people don't have you know, resources. They don't have the ability to help their kids have hobbies or they don't have a farm. And so that doesn't work for the majority of the populace. And so I, I tend to disagree with that, but I would love to hear your response. If you've ever had that said to you and, and how you, how you sort through that and maybe what advice you could give to someone who doesn't have um, a ton of resources, doesn't have entrepreneurial parents or a farm, how can they start promoting this same dynamic in their yeah, children? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it wasn't until nine years ago that we wound up building a house and moving out of a very small rancher in in a, an area of Spokane, Washington. And so 
we've, my wife and I, and this is probably because of our backgrounds also, as far as not growing up in very wealthy homes, have always operated, you know, with a spirit of abundance, but also financial prudence. We've already tackled the expense piece from an educational standpoint, right? Like unschooling is not expensive, mm-hmm. especially if you take advantage of not only events in the local community, but inexpensive virtual assistance and a lot of the free academies from, uh, sorry, but pause for a second. I'm walking past a tractor. Take, take advantage of a lot of the free resources yep. like, you know, Khan Academy or, or Michael Saylor's website, et cetera. Like the expenses piece from an education standpoint in our day and age, uh, that's, that's just a total non-issue. Uh-huh. This tractor's like following me. <laughs> it's following you. <laughs> yeah, turn around and walk the other way. Um, and so <laughs> he's stalking me. So the, the education expenses, like that's a non-issue. The food expenses, you know, back to Tim Ferriss, you know, he, he had a book called The Four Hour Body that I read, I think when my sons were two. And there's a couple of pages in that book where he's got like 30 different variations of scrambled eggs. Like here's the spices to make a Moroccan. And yeah. you know, then you add a little yep. nori and some dulce and kelp and you know, some sardines or whatever to make it Japanese. And here's how you do them with Mediterranean, with thyme and rosemary and oregano, et cetera. So our kids basically learn to cook by making like 20 different variations of scrambled eggs each morning. And every time mom and I would cook, we'd help, we'd have them helping add ingredients, pinches of salt, you know, twists of pepper, you know, cutting up a lemon and then eventually, you know, um, uh, you know, grating cheese and, you know, wielding knives and, and so we've really made them a part of the ingredient process. And they've seen as a part of that, that mom and I, will we're going to make a salad. We go out in the backyard and we'll like forage dandelion and give that a wash and have that be a part of the salad along with a couple of flower edibles and maybe some wild mint or nettle that we harvested on a hike. Right. And we, we do a lot of just like, you know, small cold water fish that are super affordable, like sardines and anchovies and mackerel and herring from companies like wild planet and we cook from scratch you know with just like whole wheat flour and baking powder and salt and a little bit of sugar and some oil and so you know our our food expenses are rock bottom our education expenses are rock bottom we recognize very early on that a child really doesn't care if they're on some luxury getaway beach in thailand versus a local park with their parent throwing a football around or a frisbee or sitting down in the living room playing a massive game of Monopoly or some other game. Like, like kids are pretty easy. They want time and love and presence and to be seen and heard and loved just like any human being. And so the, the economics of this is really not difficult. And back to the root of your question about, well, what about like extra cool things for them to do? Look, I have never been in any area of the world. I mean, look, I'm, I'm I'm walking past this right here. And I don't know if you're watching the video, but it's this park and it's got the swings, it's got the playground, it's got the rocks, it's got like for free, I could kill three hours right there with my kids doing adventure walks and hide and seek and zombie tag. And you know, even at our house, a lot of the stuff that we have, like we built our own cornhole boards and we made our own sandbags yeah. and my kids made the tree fort. And I had a local guy from church help me make a monkey bar set back behind the house like we are not like some like you know rich totally unaffordable unaccessible unrelated parents doing stuff like this you just it's part of being like proactive thinking outside the box and defying the laziness and the um kind of like the materialistic mindset of buy a new one if it's broke um you know you gotta you gotta keep up with the joneses with super expensive cars and playgrounds etc I think probably yeah. a really good book, because obviously you and I could probably spend two hours talking about affordability and bootstrapping a lot of this. Really good book is Jacob Luskar's book, um, Early Retirement Extreme. That one, and then also, uh, I think he's named Mr. Money. I think it's Mr. Money, his website. Those are two examples of oh, like yeah. mm-hmm. perfect ways for families to kind of get out of this materialistic, buy a new one if it's broke type of mindset, and instead learn how to make your own stuff fix your own stuff. And frankly, it's a perfect excuse for presence and time with the children when you're making stuff and fixing stuff together. We really do not spend a lot of money as a family. We drive vehicles into the ground until they're like 20 years old. You know, we make our own food. About the main thing we'll splurge on is we like experiences, right? So we will, we will typically once or twice a year, like this cycling trip we're doing to Italy, 
to expand our children's knowledge and cultural experiences and language, et cetera, take them on some kind of a cool vacation. And we like to be able to have like nice food when we go out to restaurants and not have the kids have to order like the nasty yep. chicken wings and spaghetti off the kids menu. So the two areas we probably will spend a little bit more money on is once or twice a year, a cool, unforgettable experience for a kid. And then when we go out to eat, kind of having a spirit of abundance and thinking that we really want to make it a nice culinary experience for everybody. Those would probably be the two areas we splurge as a family. Yeah. No, I love that. And I, I don't know. I'm always taken back when people are like, well, you know, my kid, we're not well off like you. However, they perceive that as whatever online they see. And they're like, so my, all my kids can do is watch Netflix. And I'm always like, well, when I was a kid, we didn't have enough money for cable. So we were playing outside and reading books and my kids, um, are still playing outside and reading books and making like they're making mud balls and yeah. they're playing chess. Oh. None of those things are expensive. I, I think it just takes the parents to think, like you said, think outside the box. Yeah. I, um, I had, yeah, I had a stick that doubled as a bow, a spear and a gun. I had a mountain bike. I had a pretty yep. cheap mutt dog and I had like some property to roam around and out in the hills growing up. And my parents would just make sure I was home around dinner. And if I wasn't, there wasn't any dinner left because I had three brothers. Right. And that was, pretty much it <laughs> yep <laughs> yeah exactly exactly yeah so perspective is is big there i think um i love this question from the chapter of your book and i wanted to echo it here and, and get your response in real time and the question is how have you achieved a balance between mentoring and passing on wisdom without living vicariously through oh, your children yeah. because i see living vicariously happen a lot in yeah. the parents around me yeah um so the the reasoning behind this question is like whatever hey I just got into jiu-jitsu as a parent I would really love for my sons to be the next jiu-jitsu champions I'm going to put them into jiu-jitsu whether they like it or not they're going to grow to like it someday darn it and I didn't really get good at jiu-jitsu when I was young so I want them to be the next big jiu-jitsu champs or you know for me I played college tennis I wanted to be a pro when my sons were like 2 years old I had them on the tennis court swinging tennis rackets and taking tennis lessons. And, you know, probably I was guilty at that point of living vicariously through them versus paying attention to their passions and interests and desires and, you know, and, and not necessarily forcing things upon them. So the, there's kind of a twofold answer to your question. Now there's a garbage truck following me. There's um, kind of a two, twofold answer to this question. Um, the, the first is that in the spirit of unschooling, like I described, if you're paying attention to the passions and interests and desires of your child and ensuring that you're mindful that those might differ from yours, you are going to find yourself throwing a lot of noodles at the wall to see what sticks. Hey, I'm going to put my kid in jujitsu and see if they like that. Yeah. And if they don't like that, maybe we'll try karate and we're going to try out some team sports like basketball and soccer. And then we're going to try out some individual sports like tennis and golf and I'm just constantly asking my sons, hey, you interested in this? Hey, you want to try this? Hey, check out this camp. So they're always getting opportunities thrown at them and the weirdest things come up, you know, like whatever. Uh, my, my son's two sports right now that they love are tennis and jujitsu, right? And they're also getting into like underwater photography and spear fishing and glass blowing and, and all these things that they've just kind of grown to love sometimes because dad is doing them and I invite them along. And often because it's something random they read about in a book that they want to find out. And so it's just a matter of you identifying as a parent, whether you're doing something for you or whether you're doing something for your child. So that's a mentality piece. And look, if you really, truly have a history of like, let's say like, I don't know, let's use tennis as an example, really good tennis players in the family. You've got like the perfect shoulders and calves and speed and eye-hand coordination. And you just know that if your child starts tennis when they're two, they're probably going to get a Stanford scholarship and probably go on to be a pro tennis player, et cetera. Well, you'd probably be doing them a service by making sure they at least get access to those fine motor skills at an early stage. But there are people like Andre Agassi who became embittered drug abusers because his father basically just put him hardcore into that sport without opening him up to the possibility of other interests that he might have and allowing him to engage in a lot of different sports and a wide range of sports is the book range by, uh, I think Epstein gets into. And there's like the Bryan brothers who are super happy and well-connected and socially stable. 
and their dad had them in like band and basketball and all sorts of other activities, but also tennis. So that that range versus specialization is an important Mm -hmm. consideration. So that's one is just like the mentality of making sure that you're constantly asking yourself, is this for me or is this for my child? And do I have a balance here as far as the type of activities they're specializing in versus them getting exposed to a wide range of activities? And then secondarily, it's kind of like there's this concept of the shoemaker's wife wears no shoes, right? Like when I want my wife to like, I don't know, start taking some supplement or look into some medical test because I'm concerned about it or whatever. The last thing she's going to do is listen to me or take some supplement that I give her or go get some procedure I recommend. So I'll just like strategically leave a book out on the kitchen counter or talk to one of my doctor friends at dinner one night and be like, hey, you should you should connect with Jessa about this and, and plant a seed in her head about such and such because I know it's kind of different coming from me than it is from a book or another person. And the reason I bring this up is with River and Taryn, I'm constantly reading books that I think, gosh, my sons would really benefit from this information. This entire anthology in my library, there's so much in here that would really help them as human beings. And this is all information from a financial or a fitness or a nutrition or a relationship standpoint. I wish I'd have learned when I was their age. So my fix for that is, like I mentioned, we've intentionally woven into dinner time at 7 p.m. right before we start dinner about a 10 minute discussion with me and my sons that we've been doing since they were about six years old on a book that we and father and as father and sons are constantly going through every single day. Typically, it's one chapter from a new book. So we go through anywhere from like eight to 12 books a year, and we're all reading it. They're getting to read all of my highlights, my underlines, my folded over pages, and kind of like allowing me to pass on the wisdom that I find in these books to them through them reading the book through my eyes, since it's marked up with the stuff I think is really important and that I would love for them to see, and then also getting to discuss it with me each night at the dinner table. It began with me actually giving them monetary rewards for reading a book and discussing it with me. Like I think one of the first ones they read, literally when they were like <laughs> new to reading was 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. Uh, and I, I gave, yeah, nice. I gave them I both $80 if they could get through the book in a month and write me a three-page book report <laughs> on what they'd learned. Eventually, because I didn't want them to get used to getting paid every time they read a book, we just turn it into these really great father-son discussions yeah. at the dinner table, and all of us go through these books together. And it's kind of interesting. Now, whenever I read a book, I have a different mentality because every time I read a book, I'm reading it and thinking, what in here would my sons benefit from discovering? And I'm constantly highlighting in Kindle mm-hmm. or underlying in a real book and folding over the pages the stuff that not only I think is important and we want to return to, but the stuff I know that my sons, once they eventually, you know, inherit my personal library or go through that book along with me are going to benefit from. And so I'm kind of like passing on wisdom to my children through the literary mentors that I'm already discovering myself because I love to read each week. And we've just systematically worked that into every single day of our existence. That makes sense. Yeah. I love that. I love that idea of of just even just highlighting with them in mind. I think that's that's yeah, just a really cool perspective. When I say hand them a book on, I don't know, like that early retirement extreme book that I mentioned on finances that I think is going to be, that's actually the next book that we're probably going to go through at some point in the next couple of months. It's a bunch of stuff that I wish I'd have known about finances, but they kind of like dialogue with it and digest it a little bit differently when it's dad going through that book with them and talking with them about it versus dad sitting them down at the dinner table and trying to bring them through an entire financial education myself based on what I learned from the book. It's just a slight difference in the way that you're teaching. Yeah, absolutely. I found so much in my own children, the difference in me, you know, back to the idea of living vicariously versus letting them kind of expand on their own passions. Their, their motivation is so different. Like, especially when they start to become proficient in something and they, they start to know more about it than I do. Like, there's such a pride where I can go to them and I go, well, what are you doing? Like, tell me about this. Like, teach me what you're learning. Or, um, there, it, man, it just like supercharges their, their motivation and passion for it. So it's really neat when we can step out of that, um, pushing them towards it for our own purposes yeah. versus letting them yeah. discover it. Goes it both ways, right? The best way cool. to learn is to teach. And so when I'm reading, knowing that I'm going to have to rehash that in a discussion that night at the dinner table, 
and they're reading, knowing that dad's going to put them on the spot with questions about what they took away from that book. We always read with a lot more intentionality and uh, a lot better mind for learning and grasping the subjects. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, my last question for you, because I'm going to be respectful of your time. Um, sounds like your children are multi-passionate because you're multi-passionate and my children are generally pretty easily passionate about things. But let's say a parent is listening and they have a child. They just can't get them into anything. They're trying. The kid just would rather zone out all day long and the parent's concerned. What would be your best advice for well, that Well, it kind situation? of returns back to throwing a lot of noodles at the wall and seeing what sticks because eventually you are going to find something. And look, my... My children are very passive. They're non-competitive. They're non-aggressive. And it took me a long time to deal with that as a parent because I'm one of those guys, you put me on a court or a field of play or a field of battle or whatever. And my number one objective is to like win at all costs as long as I'm playing by the rules. And my sons just couldn't care less about winning, mm -hmm. about first place, about a medal. And so I had to get used to that as a parent, but yet I still put them in a wide variety of sports until they really settled on like, tennis and jujitsu as things that like they ask to go do and they like to do regardless of whether or not, you know, it's, it's on their schedule or not. So I think that, um, books are really good. Uh, digital media can be good to a certain extent. Like for example, to find out if they would be interested in a free diving and spearfishing trip with me, I watched the octopus teacher with them and not only did they get really interested in free diving and spearfishing, but they got really interested in underwater photography right? So making sure that you expose them to a wide variety mm -hmm. of, of, of new skills and activities. Travel can be really good for this because not only leading up to travel, are we very intentional about learning a new language, about learning to cook in that style and about the mannerisms and social nature of wherever we happen to be traveling. But of course, they're constantly discovering new activities by getting outside of their comfort zone during travel as well. Books are or, or can be good as long as you recognize that you don't want to enable a child to simply live vicariously through literature, and that if there are certain books that they seem to be returning to over yes. and over again, you pair that with things they could do related to that book. Like if your kid just can't get their nose out of Mark Twain and uh, Huckleberry Finn, maybe you actually take time to bring them down to the park with the creek and build little floaty rafts and play around with how rafts work and buoyancy and crafting and building and, you know, and the type of things that they might discover in, you know, a, a boy rafting down the river. Like, so you got to be creative in many cases, but really I can't think of a single situation which I've run into a kid where they didn't seem to be interested in that many things. And then they got exposed to a whole bunch of stuff and eventually settled on a couple things that they really liked. The biggest enemy of this is social media. As you know, Jill, it's so easy to live vicariously through others to see stuff on social yeah. media to probably my biggest temptation right now is the, uh, the nature is metal social media channel, where Like it's animals going to battle against each other and stuff like that. And I have to constantly remember, Oh, I still need to go outside and shoot my bow and practice my foraging skills and my tracking skills and take my kids out there and get signed up for our next hunt. So we're not just looking at animals through screens, but we're out there in the action ourselves, right? Like it's one of my yeah. mentalities in life is it's a lot better to yes. uh to be the living movie than it is to watch the movie so to speak make your life a grand adventure and you're gonna spend a lot less time living other people's adventures i like that yeah amen 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 all right so boundless parenting where's the best place for people to buy that amazon your website where you where do you want to head should probably to grab know it. more about the publishing industry to give you an intelligent answer to your question based on what would put the most put the most money in my pocket i guess okay but, but <laughs> honestly i i don't know where wherever you find the book i know it's on audible now because the audiobook came out yesterday and i think that's if you like audiobooks okay. the audio one's awesome because all the parents Sweet. are in each chapter so it really comes alive but i know it's on amazon um i know it's on my website i think we arranged for people to get like a free chapter or something like that as part of this call maybe i don't remember if we did or not but either way uh okay yeah. Okay. I'll put yeah. I'll so drop stuff in the show notes or audiobooks yeah. so you can find it. Okay, awesome. And if someone wants to follow along with all the other things you do because you got you do a lot of things besides just being an awesome parent, you're uh biohacking and all of these health and fitness and I mean we go on and on. So where is the best place for them to follow you online to I'm keep give up you with three all the resources. The first bengreenfieldlife.com which is a lot of my health, wellness, okay. parenting, biohacking nutrition, life hacking, and life optimization type of advice with podcasts and articles and books. 
Second, if you want a flavor of what my kids do, in this case, literally yeah. and figuratively, they have had a cooking podcast and website since they were six. And that's at gogreenfields.com. And so they do like a couple times a month, a new video, a podcast, et cetera. Yeah. And then finally, this might be one of the first podcasts I've ever said this on, but we just launched a father-son gaming company called Fried Pickle Games. Our very first game uh, is in manufacturing nice. and we'll be launching the Kickstarter campaign very soon. Uh, it was inspired when my sons and I were going through Sun Tzu's book, The Art of War, about five months ago and culminated along with our love for games into a brand new company that I think people will probably love whether or not they get the game just to kind of see, you know, how you can partner with your kids on a business project that's fun for the whole family. So if you go to fartofwar.com, not art of war, fartofwar.com, you can, uh, you can, you can get in the know and stay tuned for email updates when this first game launches. And our company, Fried Pickle Games, has a whole bunch of cool games already mapped out. And, uh, and we're absolutely having a blast as a, father-son gaming company just sitting around mapping out new games doing designs everything's hand illustrated by my sons so that's all at, at fartofwar.com i love it it's all some of these principles in real time y'all so go check that out um ben this was fantastic thank you so much for your time and your wisdom and can't wait to follow along with everything else Moscow, you're doing so Idaho thanks for coming on right <laughs> all right thanks joe